Genesis 1, 6 through 10. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. And Syrian like, like a young wild ox. The Lord... The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakens the wilderness. The Lord shakens the wilderness of Kadesh. The word of the Lord makes the deeper give birth, makes the deer give birth, and strips the force bare. And in the temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned above the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the king give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Well, as we come to our passage in Luke chapter 8 this morning, The message of our passage, I think, is actually quite clear to understand. Again, we're in Luke 8, starting in verse 22, and it's a short passage, so let me just read it for us one more time. It says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. 
And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water? And they obey him. The main point of this text, I think, is stated fairly clear there in that last verse. When it says that they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Beloved, there can be only one answer to that question of who is this? And the only answer that is possible to that question, the only one who can command winds and water and they obey him, is God himself. That is who was in the boat with them. And so this passage, I think, is meant to impress upon us something of the majesty and the glory of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's my prayer that that's what this passage would do for each of us this morning, that as we look at this text, as we look at the power that God has to speak to wind and water and they obey him, that it would impress upon our hearts and upon our minds again just something of the glory and power and majesty of God. Now, Luke, throughout this gospel, as we've seen, is on a mission to proclaim to us the greatness of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of this gospel to the very end of this gospel, indeed, from the very beginning to the end of all the gospels, you could even say from the very beginning to the end of Scripture itself, the mission is to glorify Jesus Christ, to say how great, how amazing he is. Indeed, if you are a Christian here this morning, that ought to be the mission of your very life. To show how great and how awesome Jesus of Nazareth is. We saw this at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1 verse 35, it says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit himself. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the first introduction we get to Jesus Christ. Soon after, we learn that this Holy One who is to be born will actually sit on the throne of David forever and ever. So again, in Luke 1, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is given a throne, a kingdom that has no ending. After that, we see him presented in the temple and Simeon and Anna both recognize him immediately as God's chosen one, as the Messiah who is promised from ancient of days. And then we go on and we see that the young Jesus just has remarkable love for God and insight into his word. 
Remember, even when his parents were going out of town, he stayed at the temple so that he could listen to his father's word. Luke 2, 46 and 47 say, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he was uniquely wise, uniquely brilliant in the things of God, and uniquely loved God, that he wanted to be in God's temple always. And then before Jesus' ministry even began, we see him as the one who goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil himself and overcomes all the temptations that Satan could throw at him. After that, it says that he comes back and he begins his ministry in great power. In Luke 4, 40 and 41, it's a very typical passage for Luke. And it says that all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. That is the Messiah. And then perhaps most amazingly of all, we have seen that Jesus could even forgive sin. In the story of the immoral woman, but even before that, in the story of the lame man, In Luke 5, verse 24, Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man did just that. Jesus' power has been astonishing from the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke to this point that we're at here. But to my mind, what we read of this morning in Jesus calming the wind and the waves is something of the cherry on the Sunday. I think this is the most amazing thing that Jesus has done yet. If it were not written down for us in God's holy word, I'm sure I could not believe that this happened. It reminds us at once when we see that Jesus simply rebuked the wind and the waves and they ceased. It reminds us at once of Genesis chapter 1. Where it is by his speech that God creates everything. And so we see that Jesus' speech has the same power. The same power of Almighty God that with the word of his mouth they listen. If you look at other ancient Near Eastern myths about their gods and things like this, any, any other human being or even many of the gods that wanted to control the weather or the wind or the waves, they had to offer great sacrifices. They had to cut themselves. They had to achieve something great. But not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have to bargain with God. He doesn't have to bargain with the wind and the waves. He doesn't have to set up anything at all in order to maintain this great power that he has. Again, he merely speaks and they listen. Now, no wonder this passage tells us immediately after Jesus calmed the storm that his disciples were afraid. Again, that's in verse 25 of our text. It says, and they were afraid. 
And they marveled, sang to one another. They were so afraid they didn't even dare ask Jesus himself. They just kind of whispered to one another, Who is this that even commands the wind and the seas? And they obey him. Of course, we might think just in our own intuition that maybe they would be joyful or they would be relieved, right? Because the storm had stopped. They weren't in danger anymore. But that is not their first reaction. I'm sure they had some relief that the storm was gone. But no, their first reaction is that they were afraid. And I think if we pause to consider why that might be the case, and I think we can immediately understand why they would be so afraid of Jesus in the aftermath of what Jesus has just done. I mean, after all, consider why they were afraid of the wind and the sea. They were afraid, the text says, because their boat was filling up and they were in danger. That's in verse 23. Now, I don't know if they didn't know how to swim or maybe they did know how to swim, but the storm was so great that they knew that they would soon drown. In other words, they recognized that this this wind and these waves had the power to kill them, had the power to swamp their boat, maybe destroy their boat. And if they fell into that water, then they would surely die. And so they were afraid. And I'm sure we can all understand that very human reaction to being in danger. I don't know if you've ever been in danger where you fear for your life, but it can be a terrifying experience. I remember one time when I was serving in the mission field uh, in, in Afghanistan, basically everybody has a gun and, uh, and they like to play with them. And, uh, and there was one time when somebody thought that they would play with me a little bit with their gun by shooting right at my feet. And in that moment, I had no idea if this person was playing with me or if they were actually trying to shoot me. But I was terrified in that moment. I thought that might be the end of my life right there. And I'm sure these men felt no different. They were in the middle of this large lake. They knew they could not make it to shore, and they thought they were going to die. And so they they knew that these waves, that this wind had the power to kill them. But if they are so afraid of the wind and the waves, then consider just for a moment how much more should they be afraid of this one who now is shown to have power over the wind and the waves. He's not only more powerful than the wind and the waves, but he's more powerful by some order of magnitude. Again, given that it's merely the sound of his voice that calmed them. No no special sacrifice or pleading was necessary. They didn't have to throw him out of the boat or make some vast appeal to the gods. No, he spoke and it was done. Could you imagine being in the presence of someone with such power? In other words, they recognized in that moment that if they were afraid of these wind and waves that had the power to kill them, then there was someone sitting in their boat who had the power to kill them even more quickly than any wind or any waves. Now, I think we in our American context have a hard time imagining someone with this sort of power. I mean, even in a non-American context, they had power imagining someone with this sort of power. But in our context especially, 
where even in our government, everyone has limited power, we have a hard time understanding someone with great power, someone who we should reverence and fear. I think in our own culture, probably the best analogy that we have is actually to military service. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, gives the analogy of a Marine Corps general who goes to inspect the barracks of the recruits who are in basic training. Right? So if you're this new recruit, you're just trying to understand what this military thing is all about. All you've known is a drill instructor yelling in your face for the past three months. And all of a sudden, someone with stars on his lapels comes in to inspect your barracks. You are going to be afraid of that man. You are going to understand the type of authority and power that he has. Or we can probably get an even better picture of this sort of fear when we think of depictions of stories of of ancient dictators who had absolute power. Who simply with a word of their command could have you beheaded for any reason at all. It wasn't for no reason that those ancient people called those individuals gods because they recognized that they had power over life and death in their case. I was also able to meet the president of the United States one time and I was able to shake his hand and I thought that was really neat and there was some trepidation in that moment, but I can't say that there was great fear involved in that. We have very little concept of what it means to fear someone. And yet, again, we see that these disciples were afraid when they recognized the power of Jesus Christ. Again, in our culture today, we have devised many ways and ways of thinking and many different systems of trying to avoid this fear of man or this fear of rulers. Again, our whole form of government is designed to somehow limit the power of man. It's not in our nature as Americans to to fear others, right? Our whole country got its start by throwing off someone who called himself a king and who demanded our fear. We are by nature a rebellious people and not prone to just tremble before authority. Even when we look at movies today, we find that heroes that are presented in movies made in our nation can never 100% be heroes, right? They always have to have some kind of flaw or some sort of inner demons that they're trying to fight such that you can't ever fully respect them or fully honor them. As we study history today, we have a great tendency to try to humanize or tear down any figures that might seem great or might seem worthy of honor or emulation, right? Because we don't like to feel small before others or to feel inadequate. And so we don't like to have people who are simply great heroes. And of course, we do know that all humans are flawed, so we should not worship any man except for Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, I think in other cultures, in other days, they did have strong notions of what it meant to give honor or respect to another human being. Whereas again, in our own day, our intuition with with regard to any human being is to find their flaws, to find what's wrong with them, to humanize them so that they can't seem over us in some way. Even 
The evangelical magazine Christianity Today, just a couple weeks ago, published an article where they were trying to humanize Jesus more by saying that he was constantly plagued by doubts about his identity and by his doubts about God's purpose for him. We all like to find flaws in everyone. And because of that, I think that when it comes to Jesus Christ, we have a hard time understanding that he deserves our undivided reverence, our undivided fear. That there is no flaw in him, that there is no lack in him, that his power is not diminished or limited in any way at all. And therefore, we should fear him. If you're a non-believer here this morning and you're willing to recognize that Jesus is in fact a historical person, will you entertain in your mind the idea that he may have been a perfect man, a great man? Or is the fact that he was a man enough to persuade you that he could not possibly be so great or powerful as we Christians proclaim him to be? So we must recognize that we as Americans have extra work to do when it comes to reverencing and fearing God the way we should. And if you need a reminder, it is entirely right to fear God. Again, in the context of our passage this morning, it is very clear that it was right for them to fear Jesus as a result of what, they, what he did. Again, if the wind and the waves had the power to destroy them, then how much more the man who had the power over the wind and the waves? It would be foolish for them not to fear him, to think that he was just like everybody else. The book of Proverbs most famously instructs us to fear the Lord. It says several times how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, how the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The book of Psalms exhorts us numerous times to fear God. Psalm 31 verse 19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, that is God's goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. So we recognize that God has goodness, but we also fear him. Again, how could we not fear someone with so much power, with so much majesty and might, with so much authority? Again, we would have to be crazy not to fear him, to think that he was somehow safe or somehow in our pocket, that we didn't need to worry about him anymore. Let me ask you just a couple questions to see if you were really thinking of Jesus as being as great as he truly is and fearing him the way you should. One question I have is, if Jesus tells you to do something, do you simply do it, no questions asked? Not because you understand and agree with what he says, but simply because you know that he is the one saying it? Will you quit Pornography, just because Jesus says it is vile, even if you don't understand the reasoning he has behind it? Matthew 5, 28 says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, you may disagree with that. You may not understand why Jesus would go so far as to say something like that. But do you fear him? Are you willing to do it? Will you stop gossiping, even though maybe it seems very innocent to you? 
Just because Jesus, through his scriptures, has commanded you not to gossip? Again, this is Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Do you fear Jesus when you hear him speak words like that? Are you willing to go and try and reconcile with someone who maybe you are angry with only because Jesus tells you you must? Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Beloved, these are all commands that Jesus has given to us. And I confess that oftentimes these commands don't make complete sense to me. They seem a little harsh. They seem a little over the top. You know, I think I would be more merciful. I would be more gentle. I wouldn't be as straightforward as Jesus is here. But the bottom line is that Jesus himself has spoken these words. And he is Lord. And he has all power. And therefore, the question for us isn't so much, can we make sense of them? But the question for us is, will we do them? Will we listen to Jesus simply because he is Jesus the Lord? Another question I have for you is, how willing are you to speak to others about Jesus? After all, Jesus does command us to make disciples. Matthew 29, verses 18 and 19, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He does command us to speak to others for their building up. And he is supposed to be that person that you love more than anyone or anything else. And so do you hesitate to speak of him? Do other people loom so large in your mind that you hesitate to bring him up in conversation? Are you more afraid of the opinion of your peers than you are of disobedience to King Jesus? In other words, is Jesus really God to you? Or do other people have more power over your own opinions and over your words? I hope these questions start to reveal your heart whether you truly fear Jesus as you should. Whether you truly honor him as the Lord with the power that he has. And yet, of course, it would be wrong for us, I think, as Christians especially, to talk about the fear of the Lord without also talking about the goodness of the Lord. Because we know that even though the Lord is one to be feared, that is, he is one to be reverenced, to be seen as holy and sacrosanct, that even though he is this way, he is not at the same time a tyrant who wants to rule by fear. No, in his great mercy and kindness, he wants to rule by love. He wants our hearts to be drawn to him so that we serve him from the heart and not simply from fear of punishment. And so, perhaps most remarkable of all, and indeed something that should inspire fear in and of itself, is that Jesus, this one who had power over the wind and the sea, would actually give his life 
to be killed by mere men for you and for me. Romans 5, verses 6 and 8 say, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ recognized that we were ungodly. And he did not have to die. As scripture itself tells us, he could have called down an entire army of angels to stop the process of his crucifixion. And he does not. He withholds his power. He restrains his power. So that he could be nailed upon the cross for you and for me. Again, as Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus was no mere victim of crucifixion. It wasn't put upon him unwillingly. No, the only way. The only way for Jesus to go upon that cross and to suffer the punishment that he suffered is for him to willingly choose it. It's for him to restrain his power for your sake and for mine. And so the question that then faces us, beloved, if we understand how great a Lord, how great a God God the Father of Jesus is and Jesus Christ himself. And the question for us is obviously, how will we respond to him? How should we respond to him? And again, the text before us makes the answer plain. So after Jesus had spoken to the wind and the waves and rebuked them and it was calm, in verse 25, the first thing we see Jesus say to his disciples is he says to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Beloved, if we have a God who is so great and so powerful, who is so worthy of praise, and yet a God who loves us so dearly that he would give his life for us, then there can only be one appropriate response. And that is total surrender to him. It is saying, I will trust you with everything in every way. Whether I fear that I am in mortal danger, as the disciples were in this moment, I will trust in you even at the point of death. Or whether it is in the smaller decisions of day-to-day life, where we have to choose whether we're going to go our own way or whether we're going to go God's way. Saying, I will trust that God's way is right. Now, I will point out that the disciples, I think, showed very small childlike faith in this passage. We do see that when the storm came down on the lake in verse 24, what they did is it says they woke him and they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. So they knew who to turn to in their moment of trouble, even if they didn't have hearts of faith that Jesus really was going to do something about it. They at least knew, I better wake him up and see what he's going to do. And so for each of us, we should understand this as the very first and smallest step of faith we can take. Perhaps you don't have enormous trust in God that he will come through for you, that his way is the right way. Well, I would still implore you to at least try to wake him up. Go to him in prayer and say, Lord, I don't know what you can do in this situation. I'm not even really sure I believe you can do anything. But I just want to let you know what I'm going through. 
and ask you to work on my behalf. So this is the very first step of faith that we take. But again, as we grow in Christ, as we mature in faith, the way that we are supposed to grow is that our faith gets stronger and stronger. That is, our trust in God and in his power gets stronger and stronger so that we could even be in the midst of a storm like these disciples are in and our hearts would not be troubled because we know that Christ Jesus is in the boat with us. And because if he is in the boat with us, then we know that nothing ultimately can harm us except for what God himself intends. And because we know that God is good, we know that any harm that comes to us must also be for our good. Because God loves us and he is in control of all things. And because of that, we worship him and we have faith in his great power. Now, beloved, I know that the power of fear and doubt can be very real. That we can be in situations in our life where we really do not know how we could go on for one more day. And yet, I would tell you that even if you find yourself in the midst of a situation like that, especially if you find yourself in the midst of a situation like that, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. His power is inexhaustible. His love is inexhaustible. As Romans 8 tells us that if God did not spare his own son for us, how will he not with him freely give us all things? And so, beloved, there is nothing that we could face any day of our lives that Jesus himself would not have authority over, that he would not be able to shelter us from or comfort us in the midst of. So let me encourage you and challenge you right now to place your faith in Christ alone and not anywhere else for rescue, for hope, and fear him as Lord And you will indeed find salvation for your souls that can weather any storm, that can go through any sort of trial. Well, let me open us in prayer now. And if you have a child downstairs, I encourage you to go on downstairs. And let's pray to the Lord from our hearts any words of repentance that we may have and ways that we want him to act in our behalf and in behalf of of our city and our nation. Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you this morning for your great and unfathomable power. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we so often think small thoughts of your power, of your majesty, of your greatness. Lord, the way that we so often put you in a category with other historical figures who are flawed in some ways. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted once again in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, would we fear you rightly, but would we fear you in love, I pray. And so, Lord, would you help us now, I ask, to tremble before your presence. Even as we pray right now, Lord, would you encourage in our hearts enormous faith, Lord, that you are able to do according to all that we ask and thank God. 